Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Some interesting news out of the national park system last week. Two young men were sentenced to 10 days in jail each and fined $500 each for walking out onto the travertine cone surrounding Old Faithful Geyser in Yellowstone. And the state of Montana has agreed to let bison roam freely, to an extent, in their state. We also took a look at residential environmental learning centers in national parks, places such as North Cascades Institute, the Nature Bridge programs, and the program run by the Cuyahoga Valley Conservancy in Cuyahoga National Park, as well as the Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park. Some believe they're not properly managed by the National Park Service and are wrongly benefiting from federal grants. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we catch up with John Jarvis, who is director of the National Park Service during the two terms of the Obama administration. Today, he's leading the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity at the University of California, Berkeley. Working with the George Wright Society, the Institute just released its inaugural Parks Stewardship Forum online. The topic? Climate change in protected areas. We also take a look at Tumacockery National Historical Park in southern Arizona and what you can find there on your next visit to the Grand Canyon State. John Jarvis was the director of the National Park Service from mid-2009 through the end of the Obama administration in early 2017. Now he's director of the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity at the University of California at Berkeley. One of his first major initiatives there was to produce the Parks Stewardship Forum, an online journal of sorts focused on various issues key to both the health and the future of national parks and protected areas. Today, John joins us to discuss the first issue of the forum. Welcome to The Traveler, John. Thanks, Kurt. Great to be here. You know, you opted not for a typical retirement. You're, you're not doing a lot of uh, relaxing travel, lounging on the beach, building a cedar strip kayak. Uh, instead, you went to the University of California at Berkeley to launch the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity. Why did you go in that direction? Well, I guess I'm failing miserably at retirement. Um, I felt that there were still uh, things that uh, I wanted to uh, advance, things that I still wanted to work on. And, and the opportunity to work at Berkeley, which has this storied history of its relationship with the national parks. Uh, Stephen Mather, Horace Albright were both Berkeley grads. Um, you know, Starker Leopold and the Leopold Report came out of Berkeley. And, and of course, George Melendez Wright was a Berkeley grad as well and really started the natural resources program for the National Park Service. So really an opportunity to go to Berkeley and, uh, and work on really a, a bridge between the scientific community and uh, the field of, of parks and protected areas. So is that pretty much the mission or, or is the, the mission a little bit broader than that? A little bit broader. Um, 
you know, we, we try to come up with a, a crisper name, but uh, parks, people, and biodiversity is pretty broad. Um, so I think the elevator speech is that it really is an attempt to bring um, science, uh, particularly the scientific community that is often a little bit um, separated from the, the implementation side, the application side. And I've always worked in the practitioner, you know, as a park manager, a superintendent, a regional director and director, uh, even a resource management specialist in the park service. And I was always reaching out to universities uh, and building relationships with scientists. And, and um, you know, we built the CESU system, the Cooperative Ecosystem Study Unit system as a, as a bridge to that. Uh, but there still seems to be, it's a difficult transition uh, to get the science into the hands uh, of the managers. And um, so this was an area that I wanted to work in. And, and there are a couple of specific areas, climate, climate change, climate adaptation, um, issues of equity and availability of the outdoors, the sort of emerging field of public health and uh, the role nature plays in that, um, and public education, the role the outdoors play. Those are all areas I worked on a lot in my career, and I felt there was an opportunity to, to keep those moving. Um, and probably to a certain degree, uh, in part because the I felt that the new administration that came in after President Obama was not going to move the ball forward on a lot of these. So I wanted to keep some of that momentum going. Yeah. Now, recently, you and your staff collaborated with the George Wright Society to produce the Park Stewardship Forum. What is the goal of the forum and how often will we see it address new topics? Well, it's uh, really pretty exciting to see this uh, launch. We have the inaugural issue of the Parks Stewardship Forum, which you mentioned uh, just came out this week. It's, um, it's a collaboration. It's co-published between the George Wright Society and the University of California, Berkeley, and, and my institute. Um, and it's uh, hosted on the Berkeley eScholarship uh, website and on my institute website and and it's free and it's um, we designed it such that it's not intended to be a print version um, but uh, but purely online and and by doing that making it free and open sourced uh, we felt we could reach a much greater audience so George Wright uh, forum which uh, I think maybe some of your listeners are familiar with has been around for a long time and has been a, a respected journal um, targeting the field of parks and protected areas and providing a place that science and discussion and dialogue could occur around natural and cultural resources, uh, traditional ecological knowledge, uh, world parks, and others. And I mean, I always loved uh, the the George Wright Forum, you know, it's named in honor of George Melendez Wright, um, uh, who you know, really was a pioneer and uh, authored the first flora and fauna series about the national parks. But the, the society and the forum had had run into, I'd say, some financial hard times, and and there was a worry that that the 
that George Wright Forum was not going to be published again. So I reached out to um, Dave Harmon, who has been the, the editor and, and publisher uh, of the forum and said, is there an opportunity here to, to work collaboratively with the university and do a redesign, um, really freshen it up and, and uh, add um, you know, color and video and, and, and new voices um, to uh, it and produce something that would be uh, a new uh, successor uh, to uh, the George Wright Forum. And so we spent about a year uh, hammering out uh, the agreement and uh, hiring a designer, and I was able to raise some money. Um, there were several contributors, uh, uh, Rolf and Nora Mitchell, uh, 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 contributed to the society and I contributed funds through my institute um, from a donor, uh, Ernie Vasquez, uh, to the design work. And um, then we did a call for papers and we really wanted a, a broad balance of peer-reviewed journal articles, uh, non-peer-reviewed. Uh, we got some young uh, diverse voices in there. We've got some articles from uh, Native Americans. We've got some world perspectives. Um, it's a it's a pretty robust issue. And this particular issue, we we wanted to get out uh, early on on climate adaptation. Um, this is something that I know that the field uh, parks and protected areas were eager to to hear what's going on and what opportunities they have for climate adaptation not debating whether or not climate change is real, just saying, look, it's here and we need to figure out ways to adapt uh, to this changing environment. And so we provided that, that opportunity. Yeah, that first issue, John, um, focuses, as you mentioned, on, on climate change and protected areas. Um, there are articles on the collapse of bird communities in the Mojave Desert and vulnerability assessments from some units of the National Park System. Um, that they've undertaken to kind of guide adaptation to climate change, sea level rise issues faced by Annapolis, Maryland, and St. Augustine, Florida. And there's even a, an article looking at the, the breach that Hurricane Sandy back in 2012 carved in the Otis Pike Fire Island high dune wilderness and uh, more articles. That's, that's definitely a timely and a hefty and certainly at times controversial topic to kick off the forum. Um, it comes against the backdrop of the, the massive wildfires in Australia, uh, the move in Glacier National Park in Montana to remove signs that stated that the park's glaciers would be gone by the end of this year, 2020. Well, why choose such a, such a powerful topic for your first uh, issue? Well, one is uh, I have that kind of freedom. Uh, you know, that's a, a nice advantage to no longer uh, be, you know, working directly for the National Park Service and, and working for uh, a university like uh, uh, Berkeley, which has a long history of being willing to talk about controversial issues. And I guess uh, in my view, climate change could be construed as controversial. Certainly it gets debated in the press, but from a scientific standpoint, there's no controversy about climate change. It, it, it's a reality. It's highly recognized by the scientific community. Uh, there's extraordinary amount of research that has been put into it. And so it, to me, uh, it's time to just um, start focusing on what we do about it. And mm -hmm. for parks and protected areas, you know, 
they could have a zero carbon footprint and it would have basically negligible impact on the, the rising temperatures of the planet. Uh, what parks and protected areas have is a different role. Um, one that we fleshed out when I was director, <clears throat> which is to, one is to monitor the changes that are going on and be kind of the canary in the coal mine uh, that says, you know, this is what's going on. Um, they have a role in public education uh, about uh, what is happening and they have a role in adaptation. And, and you know, parks have a perpetuity mission and with the changes that are happening, they, we need to be taking action. And certainly the Trump administration has dialed back uh, a lot of that work that we had underway. And so I felt this was an opportunity to get something back into the hands of the park managers to say, here's what you should be working on. Here's what you should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and it, it sort of just ignoring the controversial aspects of that. We're talking today with John Jarvis, the former director of the National Park Service, who now is director of the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity at the University of California at Berkeley, and uh, their first uh, Parks Stewardship Forum, a collaborative effort with the George Wright Society. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. John, in one of the articles that you authored, uh, you cited Rich Sorkin, a co-founder for a firm that analyzes climate-related risks. He says that we live in a world designed for an environment that no longer exists. But you believe that society has the analytical capability to redesign that environment. How exactly do we do that? After all, we are a world of many different tribes, and not all, including the current administration in Washington, view climate change as a problem that humans have created and so should be responsible for fixing. Well, I think that we do have um, some extraordinarily powerful analytical tools um, at our at our fingertips. Uh, geographic information systems and uh, the level of detail that we can sort of analyze on the ground 
environments, uh, biological hotspots, uh, future sea level rise, uh, land ownerships, uh, demographics, uh, economics. Um, and you begin to, to look at, through all of these lenses uh, at the ground to say, uh, where are our opportunities to create um, landscape connectivity? Um, a lot of the scientists uh, that work on climate change say one of the keys is to create corridors of connectivity so that species that are forced to move as a result of, of climate change have a path. Mm -hmm. And with the analytical capabilities we have, we can identify where those barriers are to that kind of connectivity. And, you know, there's a great example with the pathways of the pronghorn in the Wyoming Grand Teton area where uh, ranchers and uh, the, the highway districts and uh, the private landowners all work together to allow the pronghorn antelope to move from its winter and summer range across multiple landscapes. And I think we can, we can take those principles and, and figure out how to do that on, on a greater scale. Um, and looking at parks, and it can be an urban park, it could be a city park, it could be a county park, a state park, national park, forest service area, whatever, as sort of nodes along a, a set of corridors that connect. And I think that's doable. We were, we were doing it uh, under the Obama administration with the Land Water Conservation Fund, and it, all of that has stopped but at the moment uh, politically. But, um, but I think it's very viable that we can do that. And that you see it already for the cities that are uh, planning for climate change, um, they're already starting to think about sort of the green infrastructure of their environments as, uh, as a mitigation and adaptation to climate change. Yeah. Now, many of the, the U.S. national parks have uh, sister park agreements with parks around the world. Is this something that can be um, transported, so to speak, to, to some of those parks, to, to everybody moving in the parks community in the same direction? Absolutely. I mean, one of our uh, sort of target markets for the new uh, Parks Stewardship Forum is the World Parks Community. Uh, and we've already been out uh, in contact with the World Commission of Protected Areas and IUCN. Uh, I have a bunch of colleagues in China right now that are working on establishing a new national park system there. And I was just over there a couple times this year and we're sharing these uh, these ideas with them as well. And so um, I think that the world parks community sees itself as at least one component in an adaptation strategy to these new challenges. And, um, and I think that, you know, things like the fires in Australia and the flooding we're seeing in the coastal environments and some of the uh, extreme hurricanes and others are, are a wake-up call and, uh, for um, a lot of people. And I think that that's an opportunity for us to uh, to work together at the at the landscape scale and really build in the kind of resilience that we need to uh, to adapt. You know, there are there are some parks, the, the coastal parks, um, the national seashores, um, Everglades National Park, Biscayne National Park, Virgin Islands National Park, 
can can much be done to protect them from from climate change and and I'm looking at you know sea level rise and and certainly the advent of of more potent hurricanes I mean you look at what Hurricane Dorian did to Cape Lookout uh, back in September I think there were 54 new breaches cut into Cape Lookout's three barrier islands whereas uh, Hurricane Sandy did one breach at uh, Fire Island um and and the Hurricane Dorian was I believe a category 1 when it hit Cape Lookout. So it, I guess if you're a park manager in one of those uh, units, you have to be kind of concerned about what the future might bring in terms of more potent storms. Uh, yeah, there's no question about that in terms of the damage. I mean, I was the Department of Interior's recovery coordinator for Hurricane Sandy, and um, we learned a lot uh, about um, how to plan for and build in resilience in these coastal environments. Uh, in anticipation of the uh, the storm that was coming to with Sandy, we were able to work with USGS and get up uh, flights to run LIDAR uh, along the entire New England coast, uh, both pre- and post-storm. And using that data, it's been published now, uh, we were able to see what were the most resilient um, aspects of the coastal environment. And it's a clear indication that green infrastructure, things like vegetated dunes, uh, wetlands, uh, seagrass beds, uh, were the most resilient. And the communities that were behind those uh, suffered far less damage than the ones that were openly exposed to the ocean or had just so-called gray infrastructure, the you know typical seawall kinds of things. So I think we're going to learn and with these storms, that how to build in resilience. And, you know, as Sorkin said, we have an environment. We, we, we built these, these places and environments with an assumption of a static climate. And most of these systems, particularly your coastal systems, are intended to be dynamic. Uh, they are, they're intended to move. Uh, and we keep trying to hold them in place. And, uh, you know, we were doing the general management plans for some of these coastal parks like Assateague, you know, we recognized that, you know, some of these, some of these, even our infrastructure was not going to persist and we needed to plan for it. Everglades as well. And down, uh, on Florida Bay that we need to build in, uh, both our own infrastructure and access and public use in a way that is far more resilient to these kinds of storms. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, you touched on it briefly. Um, when you were director of the National Park Service, you had the agency working to recognize and respond to climate change impacts in the parks. Uh, back in 2012, you released a green parks plan to reduce the Park Service's carbon footprint and become more sustainable as an agency. A year later, you voiced concern that the Office of Management and Budget didn't fully appreciate the danger of wildfires and should be appropriating more money to help with fuels control to try and minimize uh, the number of wildfires and the damage that they did when they do arrive. Um, During your tenure as director, you cited climate change as one of the greatest threats to the national parks, and you worked to adopt and implement policies to help the various units of the national park system adapt to the impacts of climate change. I'm, I'm guessing that you remain in touch with many of your former colleagues still in the agency. Where do things stand now with the Park Service and climate change? I mean, in talking about the coastal parks, you, you discussed a number of 
approaches that could be taken to um, minimize the impacts of these increasingly potent storms. Is, is that work being done? Is it being allowed to be done? Um, I think some of the work is still going on, um, but I would suggest it's being uh, kept pretty much under the radar. Um, I think, you know, park managers have a responsibility uh, to the American people, uh, to the, the laws, uh, to the Organic Act, which is to, to, pro- to protect these places unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. So um, many of them will continue to do this kind of work, um, but it is being um, suppressed um, by the current uh, administration. Uh, we know there have been in the media um, individuals like Maria Caffery, whose <clears throat> science on uh, and research uh, and publication on sea level rise impacts to national parks was there was an attempt to um, uh, to rewrite that, uh, which in my view was a violation of scientific integrity. Uh, there were other scientists within the National Park Service who have been um, uh, forced or at least attempted to uh, to rewrite their uh, their science. Uh, uh, don't see. Um, park superintendents or park interpreters uh, talking about climate change like like we did. Um, and uh, as you probably, oh, I think you published in uh, in The Traveler, the, the sort of uh, muzzle memo that came out of the, the department to uh, tell park uh, superintendents they were not to talk to the press about, uh, you know, developments on their boundaries. So I think park, have been told to stay uh, in their park uh, and not speak about these broader issues. Um, uh, I think in order of self-preservation, parks have, have followed those, those orders um, and, um, but may still be working on some of these issues in the, within the confines of their park boundaries. Yeah, yeah. I noticed um, the 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 Denver office, and and I can't put my brain right around the the exact title of the office, but they've been doing some science out in the parks related to climate change. And there was a a paper um, that came out on um, how climate change is impacting water resources at Big Bend National Park, and another one at Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. And um, I, we're we're working on a story now about how park managers are using that type of science to, I guess, make their operations more sustainable if, if that's possible. So, you know, that's got to be a good sign that, um, as you mentioned, the work is being done and some of it is getting out there. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, the parks, uh, you know, one aspect of our, our climate work was, was mitigation, our own sort of carbon energy, uh, water footprint. And uh, certainly issues like water at Grand Canyon, which is, you know, a continuous challenge, uh, and some of the other desert parks that were Death Valley and, and uh, Big Bend, um, you know, we've done work on reducing their uh, energy use by conversion to, to different kinds of lighting systems uh, to set lead silver as the minimum standard for any new construction. Uh, all of those are, I think, still going on, and I think that that's great, and they need to be doing those things. 
Yeah. One um, series of stories that we're working on and, and hope to have um, a little bit later um, this month, if not in February, looks at the Colorado River and, and how the health or the lack of health of that river impacts parks. Um, right now, we're working on parks in Utah, um, Canyonlands National Park and um, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. And, and certainly the, the diversion of flows, the, um, the impacts of um, less snowfall that uh, climate change is going to bring and turn it into rain and how that's going to impact the, the river. Certainly it's a, a concerning situation, um, not just for the park system, but for, for everybody who, who relies on the river. Yeah, I mean, the Colorado River is a, is a great example of, of how we've built the system you know, based on some assumptions and, you know, it's, it's over allocated, uh, that, uh, between the upper and lower basin states, I know a lot about the Colorado river. I was very, very involved in a number of the issues on it. Um, and, um, I think there are going to be significant challenges uh, to all of the parks along there, uh, particularly with this administration, which is obviously going to lean more, uh, on the side of the, the water users rather than the, the conservation values uh, that are derived from keeping water in the river, particularly through the Grand Canyon and the other parks. Yeah. So um, your first issue is out and published, and uh, we'll be sure to um, provide the links uh, in a story that goes along with uh, the podcast. Which topics are you looking at for future issues of the, the Stewardship Forum? Um, we're open, uh, to, uh, any ideas, uh, and actually there is a, uh, there'll be a call coming out very soon again for, uh, for papers and, and for guest editors. Uh, we like to have the issues to be, uh, sort of, uh, topical, uh, around a particular, uh, focus. Um, it seems like the next issue that we're shooting for, which will be around May, uh, will probably be on the role Parks play in public education. Um, there is a, a book coming out in April uh, called America's Largest Classrooms. This is also something that I had been working on when I was director with the National Park System Advisory Board, uh, led uh, by one of the members, Dr. Milton Chen. Uh, Milton uh, was the uh, head of George Lucas's. Um, Education Foundation called Edutopia. He's the author of the book called Education Nation, and he's been a long advocate. He was on the Second Century Commission and longtime advocate of the role of outdoors and parks in in public education. And Milton led a, a really strong team uh, that uh, wrote a book um, called America's Largest Classrooms. That we had intended for it to come out. A little earlier in the previous administration, we didn't quite make the cut in terms of timing, and um, and the uh, the Trump administration refused to print it. So I took it, I brought it to the UC Press. Uh, it'll be coming out in April, and that's also something you should keep an eye on in terms of a potential article around this book. It's got um, twenty plus authors, really great scholars in the world of of education and the role parks play, both you know on civil rights or plate tectonics or not just environment, but history as well. And we are working with some of those authors to consider uh, a feature of the next uh, forum. 
around public education. But there's some really great topics out there, this whole new field of public health and the outdoors, uh, which is kind of an emerging field with doctors prescribing parks as part of their, uh, their programs. Um, but we're, we're wide open. Uh, and we'd like to do uh, at least uh, two issues per year. This year, we might wind up with three because we had tried to get this one out uh, right at the end of last year, and we just didn't quite make the, the timing. So we might come out with three issues this year. Yeah. You know, the topic of public education is really an interesting one. And I, I wonder how many Americans really look at the parks as, as a classroom, as you put it. Um, I was fortunate last uh, July to travel to Acadia National Park and uh, spend some days at the Scudic Institute um, working with some of the scientists there on communications. And uh, the programs they have there in terms of, of helping uh, postdocs with their research and then um, um, aspiring scientists, if you will, you know, college sophomores and juniors to, to come up and work side by side with uh, the scientists in the park on park-related issues uh, was just incredible um, experience that I was able to, to look into. And of course, there was a story earlier this week on The Traveler on the residential environmental learning centers, uh, places like the North Cascades Institute and Nature Bridge and uh, on and on. And the opportunities that they provide the youth of America to not just experience nature, but to become intrigued by the, the scientist the scientific possibilities that um, might form their career going down down the road. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I think the Park Service's goal in education is that we want, um, you know, good contributors to uh, society, to our to good citizens that that are um, intelligent and want to ask questions and and learn and you know, the, the research shows that when kids are put into these environments, they, they learn more, they retain more, they ask more questions, they learn about themselves. Uh, and the, here we have these assets that are frankly underutilized uh, by the, the formal education community. And um, we'd like to see them better utilized. And the Residential learning centers like Nature Bridge and North Cascades Institute and uh, others are fantastic, but they they reach a drop in the bucket, frankly. Um, you know, in the tens of thousands of students, and there are a lot of kids in this country, and that's one reason we created the Every Kid in the Park Pass uh, to really uh, make it easy. Uh, for kids uh, to come to parks. And, uh, you know, Dayton Duncan, when he and Ken Burns were producing the, their series, Dayton City, he learned more about geology from park rangers that he ever learned, than he ever learned in the classroom. And I think that's true, is that, that folks come to national parks to have a great experience, but they always learn something I mean, through the visitor centers, through the exhibits, through the waysides, through the interpretive talks. Uh, they learn a little bit more about our nation, uh, about the extraordinary environment that we have here in the United States and, and the extraordinary history as well. And I think the Park Service has a responsibility to tell those stories. Yeah. We've been talking today with John Jarvis, a former director of the National Park Service from uh, 2009 through 2016. 
He's now director of the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity at the University of California at Berkeley, and they just released, in collaboration with the George Wright Society, the Park Stewardship Forum. Um, the first uh, topic they tackled was climate change, um, no small issue. They've got a collection of papers that uh, inform, and if nothing else, are conversation starters. John, thanks so much for joining us today, and, and we look forward to the next uh, issue. In the meantime, um, hopefully this uh, uh, project will spark some conversation and, and what can be done, not only in the parks, but across our landscape. Well, thank you so much, Kurt. Thank you for what you continue to do with The Traveler as well. I really appreciate uh, the dialogue that you create and the information you get out. And thank you for hosting me today. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. With 419 units of the national park system, it's hard to track them all and decide which to visit. Certainly, getting off the well-worn path to places such as Yellowstone or Yosemite or Great Smoky Mountains National Park will not only help you flee the crowds, but you'll also discover some amazing places that most park travelers overlook. One of those places is Tumacacari National Historical Park in Southern Arizona. To give you a sense of this park, we reached out to its chief of interpretation, Anita Butcher. So, Anita, what what do folks come to uh, to Macaquary National Historical Park to see, and what can they experience there? Okay, the park was originally set aside to preserve um, a beautiful, big old adobe uh, mission church that was at the time melting sadly away. And so, in 1908, it became a national monument. And then in 1990, two other mission sites were added to the park and it became a national historical park. So uh, the primary thing people come here to see is that big, beautiful building sitting out there that we're responsible for preserving. But um, but there's a lot else to see here, a lot besides that to see. There's a, there's a 
um, the visitor center complex was built in the 1930s, including a beautiful garden area. And some people will just come to experience that garden. There's, there was historically a large orchard, walled orchard and garden area connected with the mission community. And a corner of that has been replanted in heritage fruit trees. And people will come and and experience the orchard if they're particularly interested in that. Uh, we have um, we have many people buried here in Dia de los Muertos. There is a family that comes in and cares for a grave. So there there are many reasons to come here, many things to see. Uh, there is there is the Ansa Trail, which is a national historical trail which runs through the park, and people will access it here and walk on that trail. Um, there, it's a fabulous birding area, so we attract birders. So the the park provides programming, and if people come to catch that programming, we have tours during the busy season, led primarily by volunteer docents, sometimes by rangers. We have special events. Uh, we we became a dark sky. Actually, we were the 100th dark sky location to be designated, and we are an international wow. dark sky park now. So we have an extra focus now on, on night programming and bringing in astronomers to look at the stars. So some of our programming is now is in the evening. Uh, we have a family yeah, sleepover yeah. where people sleep in the church. So lots of programs they might catch while they're here, or they might just come and visit on their own, and we have a self-guiding tour book. Definitely one of the atypical sites of the national park system that uh, folks might not be aware of. I'm I'm curious about your Adobe mission. There is that original, dating back to the 1700s. Okay, it the actual the, the mission church structure that is here dates back to around 1800. So we say the mission was founded in 1691. That's when uh, Father Kino, Eusebio Francisco Kino, came and visited the community and said, yes, this is going to be a mission. But they didn't have a church until much, much later. And the standing structure right now, um, the community started to build around 1800. So it is original. They left here and uh, and it was abandoned for a fair amount of time and slowly was weathering away. So our job now is to maintain uh, the original fabric um, rather than rebuilding it. So, yes, the structure that people are building is yeah. is original to the community. Yeah. Now, and this, this kind of goes back to um, one of the old Spanish trails, I guess, that you could say uh, existed in, in North America, and uh, the Spanish um, would create what communities along the way military forts and then of course your your missions and and pueblos as they uh, pushed further north or south or wherever they were heading mm-hmm. and here the the push was going north so uh, the we are the far northern frontier of this particular area so uh, yes there would be there would be travel routes in this case um, following the Santa Cruz River which is flowing north through the valley and uh, along those travel routes, and in, in our particular instance, you know, Father Kino visited different communities which were located along the rivers for obvious reasons. And um, and then there would also mm-hmm. be um, uh, presidios where the soldiers were located to protect the area that would be established and also an organized sort of sort of way to protect a certain region. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, did, did Juan Bautista... De, De Anza start right there at um, 
to Macquarie, or or did he come up from the south and and overnight there, so to speak, and then move on? Okay. Yes. Well, Juan Bautista de Anza was actually the second captain of the Tubac Presidio. So at one point, Spain relocated um, soldiers to Tubac, which is just three miles north of Tumacacari. And um, Captain Anza was the second captain. His father had had, was also uh, same name, exactly the same name, Juan Bautista de Anza. His father had had this concept of coming through this area and across the desert over to California to to supply missions and communities in California. And so the second Ansa, who was the captain here at Tubac, he managed to, to get that idea um, approved. And he gathered up. So he was located just to our north, but he went down south into what is now Sonora, Mexico. And down there he gathered up. Um, a group of settlers, soldiers, wives, families, the more children, the better, because they wanted to found mm-hmm. a, a community up on that nice, lovely bay up there in California, the San Francisco Bay now. So um, he came through here with all the settlers and the cattle and the supplies on his way to, to take them to what became San Francisco. So they paused they passed. They, they dropped off their priests here at Tumacacri, and they went on up to his his um, his home in Tubac, and that was where the official launch of the expedition was, where they gathered all up and and headed to San Francisco. So that's what that Ansa Trail commemorates yeah. that route. Yeah, um, a, a short hike. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that went no, quite a distance a little, from a little tiny hike. Yes, quite a distance, and and wrangling children and having babies and and um, wrangling cows and horses and it it it's it was a heck of a journey and they only lost one person in that whole trip one woman died in childbirth just north of us and why did they um why did they want to get to the san francisco bay area it was a strategic uh it was it was such a good bay um so it was a strategic location and spain was concerned that um that other countries were going to be coming in from the north and taking over their land. So they, they, it was important to get a community established up there to keep others from moving in and, and grabbing it when Spain considered it their, yeah. their land. Huh. Interesting. Um, now, um, as you mentioned, the, the Ansa Trail passes through uh, Tumacacri, um National Historical Park, and you've got a program going on this uh, early this year, January, February, and March, I believe, where you're you're offering hiker shuttles to to visitors who want to hike a short section of the trail. We are, yes, actually, the first walkable section of the Ansa Trail was between Tumacacri and Tubac, so that is the oldest piece of the walkable trail. Um, they're constantly working on increasing the marking of the trail and the and walkable sections of it. But our nice, beautiful, old section of the trail is um, about four miles between here and two back. So between, we call it the park-to-park shuttle because you're walking from uh, the state park, two back Presidio State Historic Park, um, and to Tumacacri National Park along a National Park Service unit, the trail. So you actually get three parks in there. But um, 
We're we're doing a couple things on there. One is a guided hike with a ranger, and the shuttle specifically is just an opportunity to uh, for people to only have to hike it one way, that they can stop, leave their vehicle either at the state park or here at the national park, jump uh, and and then either jump on a shuttle and hike back or uh, hike to the other end and get on a shuttle and return to their cars. So. Uh, it doesn't take as much organizing for them to just walk the trail one way when we've got these special shuttles going. Yeah, yeah. Does it follow the the Santa Cruz River all the all the way in nice, uh, cool river and tree cover as you go, or are you out in an exposed landscape? It's it's nice and shady, which in the desert area is extremely valuable. Most of it is in more or less in the in the riparian area in the Mesquite Bosque. Um, not right beside the river, that becomes problematic um, because it tends to move around and wash the trail out. So it isn't all mm-hmm. right along the river, but you do come up to the river and you get to see it at different points and the whole trail is is pretty much nice and level and shady. Nice, nice. Now, you are located in, in far south Arizona, almost right down there on the, the border with Mexico. Um, probably, uh, how how far are you from Tucson? We're about a 45-minute drive away from Tucson, straight down I-19, pretty mm-hmm. pretty easy route. Yeah, so is that the, the jumping-off point for most of your visitors? They, they fly into Tucson or, or drive to Tucson and then head south to the park? I would say, yes. We also we have a lot of visitors um, who come from around the area and uh, bring their winter company. Uh, there's a retirement village, Green Valley, just to the north of us where a lot of our volunteers come from. And uh, so we'll, I'm, I'm sure most people do fly into Tucson, though, and that's the focus, the center point of their of their visit to this part of Arizona. Yeah. But of course, there are um, a small handful of other park units that people could uh, check off their list, so to speak, if they flew into Tucson and went to Saguaro National Park and then came down to Tumacuacuri and then... Uh, what, you've got Coronado National Memorial nearby, uh, Fort Bowie National Historic Sites, not too terribly far, maybe, looking at the map, and Chiricahua? Chiricahua, Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument is another one that is in the area. Uh, Tonto is is not far away, Casa Grande. Uh, there, there are, I believe, 22 parks in Arizona, and uh, a surprisingly large number of them down here in southern Arizona within just a just a couple of hours of us. Yeah. So I guess uh, the the winter months are the busy season for you guys. Yes, they are. Yeah, that's why we're doing these these hikes and shuttles January, February, March. That's our that's our peak visitation time because our weather tends to be just lovely at that time of year and not everybody's is. So Anita, when do these hiker shuttles run? When can people catch them? Well, this year it's going to vary each year, but this year we have them planned for the second Sunday in the month, January, February, and March, and the shuttle runs from eight o'clock to twelve noon. Okay, so uh, the first uh, first shuttles this Sunday today. I, I should have looked at my map because I was down in uh, Tucson back in November, and um, it would have been fun to take a, a side trip down to to visit you folks and and some of the other uh, units down there. But um, gives me a good idea for a road trip. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's really a nifty park. A lot to see. No, it's people are, like people it. are surprised. Yeah. They see the little brown sign on the on the interstate and have no idea what it's going to be and uh 
almost always people who come in and have no idea what they're getting into when they go out there, they're telling us how pleased they are that they ran into it. Yeah. And you've got that beautiful mission building. And uh, like you said, you're a dark sky park now, the 100th dark sky park in the national park system. Well, no, we're the 100th dark sky anything. So um, I'm not sure how many dark sky parks they are, but there are there were 100. We were the 100th designated site for the for the program, which was kind of kind of fun. Okay. <laughs> Do you have um, regularly scheduled astrology programs? Astronomy programs? Yes, we. So our our night sky programming this year we have um, January, February, March, and April. One time per month, we have we have um, some kind of a night program, and generally we have astronomers, volunteer astronomers that come and um, set up the telescopes for those. And then we also have this um, um, sleepover that I mentioned, which is a family sleepover event in March and people can sign up for that and, and, um, and get fed dinner and, and have activities and then sleep in the church or outside. And that's been really popular. Yeah. So it's not, and you've got it's a, not specifically focused on night, but uh, it takes place at night and, you know, and there'll be an evening walk or something like that, but people get out in the dark. Yeah, yeah. And I see you've got Dark Sky Program scheduled for February 22nd, a Saturday, as well as uh, March 24th, a Tuesday. And so are those ranger-led tours or, do you, or, or tours of the night sky, or do you bring in an astronomer who, who guides those programs? Generally, I, I believe all three of those, I think all those programs, we will have astronomers. We have that set up, and generally that works out. Sometimes we'll add on a, a ranger walk, but our emphasis has been trying to bring in the volunteer astronomers. All right. We've been talking with uh, Anita Bodicher, the um, Chief of Interpretation for Tumacacri National Historical Park in southern Arizona, um, about what you can see and do there at the National Historical Park, as well as uh, take a short walk along the ANSA Trail, um, tracing history. Thanks so much for joining us, Anita. Well, thank you for having me. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. To stay atop news, features, and information on national parks and protected areas, check out nationalparkstraveler.org every day. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.